Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 216, Demanding Satisfaction, Dueling in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm replaying an old episode for the first time in a few months. A little more than three years ago, co-host Emerita, Nikki, and I were on our way to see the Hamilton musical for the first time. In our excitement, we decided to record an episode about an 1806 political duel in Boston that had a lot of parallels with the Hamilton-Burr duel. We dug into the history of dueling in Boston, how dueling laws evolved in response to the duels that were fought here, and why a young Boston Democratic-Republican and a young Boston Federalist decided they had to fight each other to the death in Rhode Island. Unfortunately, I made the poor decision to pepper in samples from the Hamilton soundtrack throughout the episode, stomping all over Lin-Manuel's intellectual property. The unlicensed music even got the episode pulled from at least one podcast app. This week, I went back to our original recording and re-edited it to clean it up and to remove all the Hamiltoons. So stay tuned for one of my favorite episodes of Hub History and get ready to meet Charles Sumner's dad and Ralph Waldo Emerson's dad, to sail on the USS Constitution, and to meet Alexander Hamilton. Plus, we'll learn why fighting a duel in Massachusetts could have gotten you an unchristian burial at a crossroads with a stake driven through your heart. But before we talk about dueling in Boston, I just want to pause and thank everyone who sponsors Hub History on Patreon. When I look back on early episodes of the show like this one, I'm especially grateful for the loyal listeners who support the show with $2, $5, or even $10 a month on Patreon. It's because of their support that we've been able to continue making the show for over four years now. Since this episode originally came out, we've gotten better at writing and at recording, as you'll hear. I would say we've gotten better at researching, too, but this particular story is one of the better ones from the early years if I do say so myself. If you'd like to become a sponsor and help us keep going for the next four years, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Early in the morning of March 31st, 1806, two young men of Boston faced each other across a marshy field outside Providence, Rhode Island. William Austin was 28 years old, an attorney, a resident of Charlestown, and a supporter of the Democratic-Republican Party. James Henderson Elliott was 23 and a member of the Federalist Party. He split his time between Boston and Brookline, and though he had trained in the law, he was serving as a major in the 1st Division of the Massachusetts Commonwealth Militia. That morning, each man had awakened in a strange bed, having spent the night in separate inns in Providence. As a descendant wrote, It is likely that both principals set out by stage from Boston to Providence on Sunday, March 30th, the trip taking about five and a half hours. Probably they all spent the night in Providence and met at the agreed spot at sunrise the next morning. With the sun beginning to peak above the horizon, they had met at an empty field called Cold Spring. They marked out ten paces between themselves, then stood facing one another. Each had a friend at his right hand as they coolly leveled their pistols at one another. Now one of the friends called out, Are you ready? Present. 
Fire! And both men squeezed the triggers on their dueling pistols. If that sounds an awful lot like the famous duel that Alexander Hamilton fought against Aaron Burr two years earlier, you're not wrong. In ways that we'll examine, it's even more similar to the duel that Alexander's son Philip Hamilton fought against a man named George Eaker in 1801. Our story really begins at Harvard, where both of our principals got their educations. William Austin graded under the rules of the university, even going so far as to write an essay called The Strictures of Harvard College. It was an early example of his love of literature and writing, at which he would eventually make a living after quite a varied career. After graduating from Harvard in 1798, Austin decided that he would pursue studies in the law, but that meant paying for further education. Rather than taking the typical route of teaching school in some small town for a few years to save for tuition, as a young John Adams once did, Austin enlisted in the Navy as chaplain on the recently constructed USS Constitution. He was the first commissioned officer to serve as a chaplain in the young U.S. Navy, entering the service in 1799. President John Adams had ordered the creation of a Navy in response to an unrelenting campaign by the French against American shipping. When William Austin sailed on his first cruise on the Constitution, the undeclared quasi-war between the U.S. and France was at its height. During this cruise in the West Indies, the Constitution captured a ship called Amelia that was owned in Hamburg but sailing under French colors. Under the law of war at that time, the victors would be entitled to sell the ship as a prize of war, splitting the spoils amongst the crew. However, because the ship didn't have a French owner, it was ruled that the crew should only receive one-sixth of the value of the ship. Commodore Talbot had expected to get more for his victory, and he sent Austin to consult with an acquaintance of his who was just retiring from a position as Inspector General of the Army. A biographer gives what we imagine is a fairly fanciful account of the first conversation between William Austin and Alexander Hamilton. Who are you, sir? I am the chaplain, was the reply. You do not look much like a chaplain. I intend, as soon as I can afford it, to study law. Well, here is my library. Make yourself at home. Study out this case and determine for yourself what is the proper amount of salvage as you are interested. Mr. Austin accepted the invitation, examined the authorities, and came to the same conclusion with Mr. Hamilton who highly commended the researches and arguments of the young chaplain. With Hamilton's help, Austin was able to renegotiate the salvage value of the Amelia. For this, his portion of the spoils was $200. We found that it can be a fool's errand to try and convert historical sums into modern currency. However, that $200 was enough to allow William Austin to stay in London for two years following his discharge from the Navy while he was studying the law at Lincoln's Inn. While he was in London, he became interested in the Democratic-Republican Party back home and wrote a series of commentaries on London politics that were published in Democratic-Republican newspapers in New England. Having returned from London in about 1804, William Austin continued writing polemics for the Democratic-Republican Party in the Boston Papers. During this period, between roughly 1800 and the outbreak of the War of 1812, political tensions ran as high as they ever had in the young nation and political violence reached a peak that would only be matched in the eventual run-up to the Civil War. The Democratic-Republican Party was one primary faction, which, despite sharing a name, 
was actually a completely different party than the modern Democrats or Republicans. Founded by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the Democratic Republicans believed in decentralized power that would give the states primacy over the U.S. government. On the other side, the Federalist Party worked to create a strong central government, as advocated by John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. And George Washington unofficially, although he never publicly joined a party. In Boston in 1805, a prominent Democratic-Republican captain in the state militia named Joseph Loring Jr. was arrested for disobeying orders after he refused to lead his men in a parade where he felt that other officers were given preferential treatment on political grounds. His case was referred up to General Simon Elliott, the Major General of the 1st Division of the Massachusetts Militia. Simon Elliott was a veteran of the Revolution, having been a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army before retiring back to Brookline to run the family snuff mills. Back in episode 59, we discussed the Mother Brook, which took water out of the Charles River to power mills in Dedham. Coincidentally, General Elliott was one of the plaintiffs who sued the Mother Brook mills on behalf of the Charles River mills downstream. Small world. At one point, Elliott was commanding officer of the Company of Cadets, which you can hear more about in episode 20, before rising to be one of the highest positions in the state militia. He also became a very influential Boston Federalist. After having Captain Loring arrested in October of 1805, General Elliott began the court-martial process. However, he didn't seem to be interested in actually bringing the captain to trial, letting the court-martial drag out until December. Even after the court-martial acquitted Loring, General Elliott refused to allow the results to be released and Loring's name to be cleared until April of 1806, long after our duel had been concluded. Instead, Elliott seemed happy to see Loring humiliated. Loring wrote petitions to the general, to Governor Caleb Strong, and to the state legislature, before writing a pamphlet in which he sought to get public opinion on his side in March 5th of 1806. I have written respectfully to the Major General of the 1st Division. I have petitioned His Excellency, the Commander-in-Chief. I have presented a memorial to the Honorable Legislature, and I find myself in the very singular situation of being out of the protection of laws, or there appears to be no power to which I can appeal to be reinstated in those rights, which, as a citizen, I am conscious of having never forfeited. The above circumstances impel me to make an appeal to the world. Seeing this appeal from his fellow Democratic Republican, William Austin put pen to paper to craft a response. His reply appeared in the Boston Independent Chronicle, a Democratic Republican newspaper, on March 17th. It was written in the form of an open letter to Major General Simon Elliott, and signed Decius, perhaps in a reference to Roman Emperor Trajan Decius, whose policies increased the persecution of early Christians. It's a long letter, and it's full of personal attacks on the Major General, like this one. Though vanity inspired you to become a Major General, had you carried yourself modestly, the trappings of your office had still been sacred, and your merit and honor unmolested. Pity it is that the first notice you have ever attracted should lay you bare to an inspection that will not only discover your airy nothingness and pompous imbecility, which might long have passed current among counterfeits, but will not leave you in that condition which of all men you ought most to have avoided, 
and from the responsibility of which you will call in vain on your main pillar, the governor, to release you. It was certainly an evil genius which impelled you to enter the lists of federalism. What then could induce you to outrage the feelings and honor of your fellow citizens in the manner you have? What could induce you to trample on the Constitution, which, if you despise, you ought at least to understand? What, sir, could induce you to do a willful and unprovoked injury to an officer in all respects except rank equal to yourself? Your military honors are all by courtesy and unreal as the dreams of your own importance. Practically any paragraph we chose to repeat would have been worthy of a challenge under the code of honor that gentlemen lived under at the time. Austin made it clear that a duel is what he was looking for. After signing the name Decius, he added the line, My real name may be had at the publishers if General Elliot appeals in person to obtain it. The morning after the Decius article was published, General Elliot was walking on Court Street when he saw Austin walking nearby. He confronted the young lawyer, and by some accounts, it seems like Elliot took a swing at him. However, the aging general got the worst of the resulting fisticuffs was a much younger man. Austin rode back to Concord, where he was representing a client in court, while Elliot was left to stew on what had happened. When the general relayed what had happened to his son, James, James was immediately moved to defend his father's honor. The younger Elliot summoned his friend Henry Sargent, who was also an aide to the general. He asked Sargent to act as his second in an affair of honor, and Sargent agreed. Sargent immediately rode to Concord and called Austin out of the courthouse. Just as an aside, we'd like to apologize here that we don't have as much background on James Henderson Elliot as we do on William Austin. Austin later became a well-known author, so there are literary reviews by people as notable as Reverend Thomas Wentworth Higginson. You may remember him from his attempt in episode 16 to free Thomas Sims from the courthouse in Boston, where he was being held under the Fugitive Slave Act. One of Austin's descendants also wrote two biographies, which we mined heavily for background. James Henderson Elliot was General Elliot's oldest child and only son. He was also a Harvard man, having graduated in 1802 and received a master's degree in 1805. He trained for a career in the law, but was never admitted to the bar. One biographical sketch suggests that his poor health kept him from being an attorney, but it does not seem to have kept him from a career in the military. Under his father's tutelage, he rose to the rank of major in the state militia, serving as the general's aide-de-camp. So it was James Henderson Elliott's second who rode to Concord to present William Austin with the challenge. We have one version of the encounter from the letter Austin wrote to his friend Charles Sumner Sr., asking him to act as Austin's second. I have to request you, and I should have made this request had you not written me, to provide a pair of as good epistles as you can procure, and if possible, try them with some confidential friend. If you ask wherefore, I have to tell you that Mr. Henry Sargent called me out of the courthouse yesterday morning with a message from the young Elliot. He first opened upon me with young Elliot's expectation that I would give him the satisfaction of a gentleman. I told him, by all means, that I expected to hear from him and commended his filial conduct. He then told me that it was Elliot's determination that one of us should fall. I told him that depended on himself, 
that I presumed young Elliot was a brave man and was in the habit of believing every man brave until he proved the contrary. Another version says that Sargent was carrying a note from the younger Elliot, one that was very brief and to the point. Mr. William Austin, Sir, I cannot live under the thought of the treatment which my father yesterday received from your hand. I have the character and feelings of a gentleman. I am convinced that you are one and request you will give me the opportunity to take your life. James Henderson Elliott, Boston, Tuesday morning, 6 o'clock, March 18, 1806. No matter how it was worded, Austin immediately accepted the challenge. In his letter to Sumner, he said, I told him what I had done was a deliberate act, that it was passed, and that I would support it. And though the responsibility was personal, the hazard was in behalf of an indignant and injured community. He then spoke of an apology and acknowledgement. I told him that was impossible. He said it would not be degrading. I told him I always suffered most when I injured the feelings of another, but that in the present case, though I did not see how young Elliot could consistently with filial respect act otherwise, yet for myself, if I had a hundred lives, I would give them all in the present cause. For it was apparent that what I had done was a deliberate act, and I was persuaded of my own open, undisguised, and proper conduct. Austin said that he could not fight a duel as long as court was in session because his clients demanded his attention. But Mr. Elliot would have his satisfaction if he could wait until court adjourned, which Austin expected would be on or after March 22nd. When he was free, he would choose a second, who would on Sunday or Monday at furthest wait on him, meaning Sergeant, at the corner of Essex Street where he lived, and that it would be most agreeable to me to go to Rhode Island, or anywhere out of the state, which he likewise thought most prudent. Dueling was never as widespread in New England as it was in the South, but that doesn't mean that it was unknown. In fact, the first duel known to have been fought on American soil was at Plymouth in 1621. Edward Doughty had been one of the original pilgrims, arriving in 1620 as a passenger on the Mayflower. He may have been born in 1600 in East Halton in Lincolnshire, but very little is known before he shows up in Plymouth as an indentured servant to Stephen Hopkins. Dottie was apparently a young man with a hot temper and only a casual regard for the law. He would appear in court in Plymouth many times over the years for everything from not fencing his cows properly to slander to theft and multiple assaults. The cause of this quarrel is lost, but on June 18, 1621, he challenged Edward Lester to a duel. Lester was also one of Stephen Hopkins' servants, who had also arrived on the Mayflower. They fought with swords and daggers, but they both survived. One was wounded in the hand and the other in the thigh, and then their neighbors separated them. As punishment, their heads were tied to their feet. They were meant to stay that way for a full day, but after an hour, they were in such pain that the governor and their master agreed to cut them loose. Duels were uncommon when they meant duking it out with swords, and they remained rare until the Revolutionary Era. Only after pistols took the place of swords, and behavior became regulated by the 1777 Irish Code Duello, did dueling become widespread in America. Dueling still wasn't popular in New England, 
though Massachusetts passed its first law specifically prohibiting duels in 1719. That whoever, from and after the publication of this act, shall of their own heads, and for private malice and displeasure, in fury or revenge, fight a duel, combat, or engage in a recounter with rapier or small sword, backsword, pistol, or any other dangerous weapon, to the danger of life, mayhem, or wounding of the parties, or the affray of his majesty's good subjects. Anybody who engaged in a duel would be fined up to a hundred pounds, spend up to six months in jail, and could be corporally punished. Anyone who challenged someone else to a duel would face the same penalties. Despite this law, Boston was not without experience in dueling. On July 3rd, 1728, Boston would be shocked by a fatal duel right on the common. That night, two young men stayed up late, drinking and playing cards at the Royal Exchange Tavern, which stood on King Street, which we now know as State Street. The establishment was known as a noted resort of the solid men of Boston, as well as the gay blades of the town who were in the habit of drinking and gaming there. Benjamin Woodbridge was just 20 years old, a student at Harvard, and a descendant of Harvard's first graduate. He had grown up in Barbados, but his father sent him to Boston to finish his education. His drinking buddy was Henry Phillips, the 23-year-old brother-in-law of Peter Faneuil, a wealthy merchant who would later build a fine public market for the town. The reasons for it are lost, but at some point the two quarreled. They were friends, but they were young, hot-blooded, drunk friends. And their quarrel would end in what is usually referred to as the first duel in Boston. The two young men left the tavern, agreeing to retrieve their weapons and meet on Boston Common. Woodbridge stopped at the White Horse Tavern to see Robert Handy, an officer with one of the many military companies in Boston, to retrieve his sword. Handy was unsure, as his testimony reveals. Mr. Benjamin Woodbridge came to me at the White Horse and desired me to let him his own sword. I asked the reason. He replied he had business that called him into the country. I was jealous he made an excuse. I urged him to tell me plainly what occasion he made for a sword, fearing it was to meet with Mr. Henry Phillips, who lately had fell out. He still persisted in his first story, upon which I gave him his sword and belt. Being unsatisfied with Woodbridge's response, Handy decided to see where he was going. I immediately followed and went into the common, found said Woodbridge walking on the common by the powder house, his sword by his side. I saw no person save him. I again urged the occasion of his being there. He denied informing. In some short time, Phillips appeared with his sword by his side and cloak on. I told them I feared there was a quarrel, and what would the events? They denied it. The two young men would only say that they had private business to attend to and insisted on being left alone. Handy walked away toward the far side of the common, but soon turned back. As he was walking back down the common, he saw young Woodbridge coming toward him. I first saw Mr. Woodbridge making up to me, holding his left hand below his left breast. I discovered blood upon his coat, asking the meaning of it. He told me Mr. Phillips had wounded him. Having no sword, I inquired where it was. He said Mr. Phillips had it. Mr. Phillips immediately came up with Woodbridge's sword in his naked hand by his own side. 
I said I was surprised that they should quarrel to this degree. I told Mr. Phillips he had wounded Mr. Woodbridge. He replied, yes, so he had. And Mr. Woodbridge had also wounded me, but in the fleshy part only. With that, the three parties basically wandered off to go their separate ways. Robert Handy went to a dinner party while Henry Phillips went off to another tavern. Eventually, Phillips must have felt some concern or remorse because he ended up seeking out a pair of doctors, then going out with them to try to find and help Woodbridge. They would not be successful. A newspaper reported the aftermath. About three in the morning, after some hours' search, was found dead near the powder house in the common, the body of Benjamin Woodbridge, a young gentleman merchant of this place. He had a small stab under the right arm, but what proved fatal to him was a thrust he received under his right breast, which came out at the small of his back. The next morning, Royal Governor Dummer put up wanted posters all over town searching for Henry Phillips, but he was gone. He had used his merchant family's connections to secure immediate passage on a ship bound for Europe. He would never set foot in Massachusetts again. Benjamin Woodbridge is buried in the Granary Burial Ground. Thanks to Woodbridge's death in 1728, Massachusetts changed its laws regarding dueling, trying to create a more effective deterrent. It kept the earlier penalties for challenging or accepting a challenge and for fighting in a non-fatal duel. The fines were increased to 300 pounds and the jail time was lengthened to a year. A new twist was added. Anyone convicted thereof shall, for every such offense, be carried publicly in a cart to the gallows with a rope about his neck, and sit on the gallows for the space of one hour with a rope about his neck as aforesaid. The new law added dramatically harsher punishments for cases where a duel ended in death. Notably, the new penalties applied to both the winner and loser of a duel. When and so often as it shall appear by the coroner's inquest that any person hath been killed in fighting a duel, the corpse or body of such person so slain shall not have a Christian burial. But the coroner of the county where the fact shall be committed shall be, and hereby is directed and empowered to take effectual care, that the corpse of all persons so killed be immediately secured and buried without a coffin with a stake drove through the body at or near the usual place of execution, provided it be within the space of ten miles. If otherwise, then in the most public place in the town where the fact was committed, the charge to be paid by the county, and in case any person shall slay or kill any other in duel or fight as aforesaid, and upon conviction thereof suffer the pains of death as is by law provided for willful murder. The body of such person shall not be allowed Christian burial, but be buried without a coffin with a stake driven through the body at or near the place of execution, as aforesaid. This law attempted to strip the honor out of dueling. If you fought a duel and won, you'd be executed. If you fought a duel and lost, you'd be dead anyway. Either way, your body would be taken to a crossroads or a gallows and buried without a coffin or a grave marker. The body would be buried north to south instead of the Christian custom of west to east. A stake would be driven through your heart. This served dual purposes, defiling your body so that punishment continued after death and keeping you from ascending to heaven during the rapture. 
The practice of using unchristian burial as a deterrent to particularly heinous crimes goes back to at least the early 1500s, having been applied in cases of suicide. In 1805, the law would be amended to include dissecting and anatomizing your body. It shall be the duty of the sheriff to deliver the body of the convict, being dead, to a professor of anatomy and surgery in some public college or seminary, when it shall be required in his behalf, and otherwise to any surgeon or surgeons who shall be attending at the place of execution, to receive the body, and will engage for the dissection and anatomizing thereof. So in Massachusetts, being executed for killing someone in a duel, or being killed in a duel yourself, would mean an unchristian burial with a stake through your heart. You can see why William Austin preferred to meet in Rhode Island, dispatching his second to meet with Elliot's second. When Henry Sargent and Charles Sumner Sr. met, they negotiated the mechanics of the duel. This passage is a bit long, but we're going to read it in full because it gives such a great insight into what an agreement to duel actually looked like. This is the actual proposal for the duel, which was written by Austin and agreed to by Elliot. Mr. A will meet Mr. E with a brace of pistols on the borders of a neighboring state this day in a week at sunrise. Mr. E shall select the particular spot, and Mr. A shall select position. The spot shall be made known to Mr. A by Thursday evening, 7 o'clock. The position shall be chosen by Mr. A after the ground is marked off and seen by each party. Mr. A will exchange two shots with Mr. E at 12 or 10 paces distance, as Mr. E shall please. Both parties shall fire at the same time and by word of command. The pistols fired at once shall be alike and loaded alike with one ball each. Whatever may be the kind of pistols which either party carries on to the ground, his antagonist shall have his choice of them. The pistols of Mr. E, the challenger, shall be fired first, and if neither party is wounded or satisfied, the pistols of Mr. A, the challenged, shall then be fired. The participation of pistols is proposed in order to render the hazard as equal as possible, and in some degree to take away the superiority which practice may have given the one over the other. After the ground is marked off and the parties have taken their position, the second of Mr. E, the challenger, shall give the first word of command in the following manner. He shall ask the parties, Are you ready? If both parties answer yes, he shall say, Present. Fire. Pausing a second between the words. If the first fire should not prove satisfactory, nor wound either of the parties in such a manner as to induce him to decline a second shot, the second of Mr. A shall then ask the parties, Are you ready? If both parties answer yes, he shall then say, present, fire, pausing a second between the words. Neither party shall hold more than one pistol at a time. When the first brace is fired, each second shall go to his principal, receive his discharged pistol, and give him the other that is charged. There shall be only two pair of pistols carried onto the ground. Neither of the seconds shall hold more than one pistol, and that solely for the use of his principal. During the first fire, the pistols in the hands of the seconds shall be loaded. During the second fire, they shall not be loaded. The seconds shall each of them stand from the other at the same distance at which the principal stand, each second on the right hand of his principal, 
equally distant from both parties, on a line drawn at right angles over the center of the line of fire. The strictest silence possible shall be preserved on the ground, which shall not be interrupted except by the second giving the word of command, or by one second speaking to the other second or to his own principal. Mr. A, entertaining no inimical feelings toward Mr. E, does not conceive himself in honor bound to expose his own life or that of Mr. E to any greater hazard than is here offered, especially as Mr. A does not hold himself particularly responsible to Mr. E, while superior claims may, with more propriety, be urged against him by another. And as is wholly from motives of delicacy to Mr. E, that Mr. A has consented to consider him a party in this affair. Although the act of Mr. A, at which Mr. E has taken offense, was a deliberate act for which Mr. A cannot at present offer any satisfaction than what is here offered, is not impossible, but that the measures to which General E is having recourse may place matters in a different light from that in which Mr. A has hitherto viewed them, in which case he will be proud to make any acknowledgement that circumstances may then render proper, and to say or do anything which any gentleman of honorable feelings can wish or expect of another. I accept the above proposal of William Austin, Esquire. James Henderson Elliott, Boston, March 24th, 1806. So Elliot and Austin had agreed to exchange two shots from two pairs of dueling pistols. Under the code duello, the seconds could step in when blood was shed, declaring that the honor of their principles was satisfied. One of the principles could also apologize or otherwise place matters in a different light. For the duel, James Elliot chose the ground. The account by Austin's grandson describes it. The field of combat was Cold Spring, Rhode Island, now a part of Providence. Cold Spring was between Pittman and Waterman Streets, close to Pittman, and between East River Street and Bellevue Street. Fifteen years ago, the spring was filled up. It used to flow into Round Cove. In the show notes, we'll have an 1803 map of Providence showing the location along the Seekonk River, marked simply as Marsh. More recently, Bellevue Street has been renamed Cold Spring Street, and the dueling ground was at the site of today's Witherby Park. As Austin and Elliot faced each other across the marshy ground at Cold Spring, an apology seemed unlikely. Austin had already said on a number of occasions that the offense against General Elliot was a deliberate act, and Elliot couldn't back down now that he had issued the challenge to defend his father's honor. As outlined in their written agreement, the dueling party formed a rough square in the field at Cold Spring. Elliot and Austin faced each other from opposite corners, while their seconds, Sergeant and Sumner, also faced each other, each equidistant from the other. Each man took one pistol in hand, while the seconds stood by with the second pistols ready. They marked off ten paces from one another. According to the agreement, Elliot's second Henry Sergeant said solemnly, are you ready? To which both principals replied, Yes. Sergeant continued, Present fire. William Austin's gun misfired, and he was hit in the neck by Elliot's bullet. It must have been a minor wound because both parties called for their seconds to make the next pistol ready. They resumed their places, and this time Charles Sumner asked the principals, 
Are you ready? Present fire. This time, Elliot's bullet hit Austin in the thigh. Blood had now been shed not once but twice. By the standards of the time, honor had been restored and the duel should have been called off. Tempers appear to have been running high because the principals demanded an opportunity to exchange a third shot. This time, neither man was hit. Maybe he was in too much pain, or maybe he was losing too much blood, or perhaps he was just embarrassed by his lack of marksmanship, but Austin allowed the duel to be called off after the third shot. After all, a one-time chaplain in the Navy could not be expected to have as much practice with a pistol as an infantry officer. Both men returned to Boston, with the quarrel apparently behind them. In another Hamilton parallel, Elliot would die two years later at the age of 25. George Eaker, who killed the young Philip Hamilton in a duel, died less than three years later. Like Woodbridge and Phillips, Austin and Elliot have the honor of having inspired a change to the Commonwealth's laws regarding dueling. In their case, the law was changed to try to keep young hotheads from seeking out states with more lenient dueling laws. An inhabitant or resident of this commonwealth who, by previous appointment or engagement made within the same, fights a duel outside its jurisdiction and in so doing inflicts a mortal wound upon a person whereof he dies within the commonwealth, shall be guilty of murder within this commonwealth and may be indicted, tried, and convicted in the county where the death occurs. We actually had trouble figuring out when this law was passed, but it was in place by 1836 at the latest. Unlike the bit about staked burial and dissection, this passage is still on the books. It's in Section 3, Part 4, Title 1, Chapter 265 of the Massachusetts General Laws. William Austin would go on to become a fairly well-known author, writing religious musings such as The Human Character of Jesus Christ, as well as short fiction like The Man with the Cloaks and Martha Gardner for publication in magazines. His most popular story was Peter Rugg, The Missing Man, which was published in the New England Magazine in 1824. In the story, Rugg was portrayed as a stubborn, angry man who rides into a storm in 1770 and becomes cursed to drive a carriage through all eternity. Because he wrote the story in the style of a folktale, many people came to believe that he had simply recounted a traditional story. Travelers would sometimes claim to have seen Peter Rugg driving his carriage along a lonely road at night. Nathaniel Hawthorne was 20 when Peter Rugg was published, and it seems to have had a profound impression on him. He introduces an aging Peter Rugg in a story in Mosses from the Old Manse. Herman Melville was still a toddler when Austin introduced Peter Rugg, but went on to refer to the character in his story, Bartleby the Scrivener, 30 years after the original was published. After the affair was done, the participants seemed to want to put it behind them. Writing of William in 1904, Walter Austin would say, My grandfather deeply regretted the whole affair and rarely, if ever, alluded to it to his children. Of Austin's second, Charles Pinckney Sumner, a biographer would write, Mr. Sumner deeply regretted having taken part in this conflict, and the subject was unknown to his children until after his decease. Perhaps the family experience with dueling helps to explain why Charles Sumner Jr., the U.S. Senator who was famously caned nearly to death on the floor of the Senate, went to such great lengths to avoid affairs of honor during the tense, 
violent political era leading up to the Civil War. William Austin may have put dueling behind him, but that doesn't mean that dueling was finished in the town of Boston, or that the Austin family had seen the end of political violence. Later in 1806, the Austin family would be embroiled in a violent act right at home on the streets of Boston. Benjamin Austin was chairman of the local Democratic Republican Party and a cousin of William Austin. He threw a huge celebration for Independence Day. After it was over, he ended up getting into a dispute over the bill with his caterer. The caterer, in turn, hired attorney Thomas Selfridge, a Federalist, to try to collect the bill. Selfridge and Austin began trading public insults in the local newspapers, even after the catering bill was settled. Selfridge published an ad in the Boston Gazette that said, "Benjamin Austin, loan officer." Having acknowledged that he has circulated an infamous falsehood concerning my professional conduct in a certain cause, and having refused to give the satisfaction due to a gentleman in similar cases, I hereby publish said Austin as a coward, a liar, and a scoundrel. And if said Austin has the effrontery to deny any part of the charge, he should be silenced by the most irrefragable proofs. On August fourth. Thomas Selfridge was working at his office in the old state house when his friend Henry Cabot came in. Cabot had heard a rumor that Austin had hired someone to give Selfridge a public beating. Enraged, Selfridge armed himself with a brace of pistols and stormed out onto State Street. In an area called the Public Exchange, Benjamin's 18-year-old son Charles Austin confronted Selfridge with a heavy cane. What happened next is subject to debate. Some accounts say that young Charles gave Selfridge a blow to the forehead with his hickory cane. Others say that only words were exchanged. No matter the truth, the outcome would be the same. Selfridge fired one of the pistols he was carrying, and Charles Austin fell dead on State Street. His funeral was presided over by William Emerson, father of Ralph Waldo, who was a close friend of the Austin family. His funeral sermon focused first on the tragedy of the death of a child and the mourning of the parents. Then he railed against the sins of the times and the wicked state of society on account of its consequences, concluding, "What then, finally, my brethren, do I propose as the means of averting the divine displeasure? I propose and recommend that we bring hither the enemies of Christ, our habits of evil speaking, our inordinate ambition, our pride and malice, and slay them at his feet." I ask that we bring hither our feuds and discord, our malevolence and selfishness, and make a sacrifice of them on the altar of the gospel. I exhort that the work of reformation begin in every bosom and in every mouth. I admonish that we universally impose the restraints of religion on our hearts and hands, our lips and pens. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," saith the Lord. Selfridge would be found not guilty of homicide in an early case of justifiable self-defense, leaving the door open for future duels. They would never be common, but they did happen, including the 1817 duel at Castle Island in which Lieutenant Robert Massey was killed, inspiring the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Cask of Amontillado. As soon as I read Walter Austin's book about his grandfather's duel, I was struck by the parallels between that event and the musical Hamilton. 
For the Hamilton fans out there, we're just going to run down the list really quickly. The austin Elliott duel was sparked by partisan tension between the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans. Much as both the Alexander Hamilton-Aaron Burr duel and the Philip Hamilton-George Eaker duel were. James Elliott challenged William Austin to a duel in order to defend his father's honor, just as Philip Hamilton challenged Eaker in order to defend his father's reputation. The elder Hamilton was a Revolutionary War officer, like General Simon Elliott, the father of James was. Much as George Eaker was older than challenger Philip Hamilton, William Austin was older than his challenger, James Elliott. Though it's not true that everything is legal in New Jersey, both dueling parties went to neighboring states in order to take advantage of less stringent dueling laws. Two years after he killed Philip Hamilton, George Eaker died of a respiratory illness, perhaps consumption, that he contracted after fighting a fire in winter. James Elliott, two years after he shot William Austin, died from a mysterious respiratory illness that was exacerbated by winter weather. If you've seen the show, let us know if we missed any parallels between the Austin family and the Hamilton family. To learn more about dueling in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 216. I'll have a wealth of links to information about the duels referenced in the episode, all the duelists involved, and the history of dueling laws in our Commonwealth. We'll also have historical and modern maps showing where the dueling ground at Cold Harbor was. You'll be happy to know that since we originally released this episode, co-host Emerita, Nikki, and I were able to make it to Hamilton on Broadway in January 2018, and we liked it so much that we saw it again when Lin-Manuel reprised his role in San Juan in January 2019. I can't recommend it highly enough, so go see it in a city near you as soon as this stupid pandemic is over. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. We'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.